A triad of national governments, private corporations, and conservation groups have for decades eroded the autonomy, way of life, and territory of the indigenous Maasai population of northern Tanzania. Prior to that, German and British colonialism had their own devastating effect on these semi-nomadic herders and subsistence farmers. This woeful legacy has left a people in desperate straits, but at every turn they've sought to resist their dispossession and protect their autonomy and way of life. More recently, they've turned to the courts, and while that too has been an arduous journey with many setbacks, they recently scored an important victory in the East African Court of Justice against the Tanzanian government. Joining us now by phone to talk about this recent development and the background to this conflict is Elizabeth Fraser, a senior policy analyst with the Oakland Institute in Oakland, California, and co-author of the report Losing the Serengeti that focuses on the plight of the Maasai in northern Tanzania. Elizabeth Fraser, welcome to Amandla. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the court ruling itself back in September. Tell us about the main lines of the case and the ruling. Sure. So this um, court case that went to the East African Court of Justice really began um, and revolves around evictions that took place in August of 2017. These were evictions that took place on registered land that is registered to Maasai communities um, and is close to the borders of Serengeti National Park. And, and this eviction took place under government orders. There was actually a statement put out by the Ministry of National Re- Natural Resources and Tourism that said that the evictions would take place for about two weeks, that they were meant to preserve ecosystems and attract more tourists to the area. It actually even went so far as to say that false information was being spread about the nature of the evictions with the intention to generate hate against the government and threaten any people that were speaking out against these evictions. Um, Now, this comes as a long sort of line of evictions that has happened against the Maasai under government orders with collusion of various foreign tourism companies. Um, And essentially, four villages um, from this region decided that enough was enough. And after having tried in domestic courts and using domestic legal mechanisms, that they would go to the East African Court of Justice, basically saying that they wanted an end to the evictions, and they really wanted an unequivocal recognition that the land is truly theirs to see these, this legacy of evictions that have taken place for the last decade or so end once and for all. Okay, so before we get to uh, what the court actually ruled in this particular case, who's behind the evictions? What's driving this? Well, as you said in your introduction, that there has been this very long legacy through colonial times and then through land legislation under the Tanzanian government um, up to current day to really dispossess the Maasai from their land. But the piece that we really focus on in our report, in addition to this, is the collusion between the government and foreign safari organizations, Mm -hmm. companies really, um, to to move the Maasai off the land to create these spaces where foreign tourists can come in and have the sort of, quote, pristine experience Mm -hmm. uh, in the Serengeti region and in other regions neighboring the Serengeti. Um, And so it's these forces that are really leading to these evictions. Okay, so there in your report, um, you you talk about two, uh, two 
companies in particular that have really, really been ramping up the pressure on the Maasai over the last uh, several years. So maybe we could take this apart a little bit and take a look at them. One is a Boston-based uh, company. The other one comes out of the U- United Arab Emirates. So can you just describe a little bit these two organizations and the actions that they've taken that have so kind of forced the Maasai up against the wall in terms of, well, essentially, really, their very survival as a I mean, their ability to stay on their land, to continue to to have a nomadic existence and a sustainable way of life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so the first one is called Tanzania Conservation Limited, mm-hmm. and it's a national company based in Tanzania. But importantly, it's owned by the same couple that owns this high-end safari outfitter based out of Boston called Thompson Safaris. And it's um, the land that they have leased um, that Tanzania Conservation Limited has purchased this 96-year lease to is used by by Thompson Safaris for their safari purposes. Um, and there, the contention is really over this this lease to a large parcel of land. It's 12,617 acres, and it was leased to uh, to Tanzania Conservation Limited in 2006. And and what the Messiah alleges is many different things. First of all, they dispute the legality of being able to to lease this land. Um, But they also allege that since um, Tanzania Conservation Limited has uh, taken over control of the land, that they've been denied access to vital grazing areas and watering holes that they rely upon for their survival and have used for centuries, that they've faced immense intimidation and harassment from police who are called by the safari company whenever the Maasai come into the area. Um, They've even alleged things like that their kids aren't able to walk across the lands to get to their schools that people are being shot at. And and when I say alleged, um, I encourage listeners to really take a look at our report because in addition to field research, it's based on an extensive review of about 800 pages of internal documents that are extensively quoted in the endnotes that really back up these allegations and and, um, describe the issues that are playing out on the ground there. Mm -hmm. The owners of that particular company, so that would be Judy Winland and Rick Thompson, are, well, argue, they don't argue, they promote on their website that in fact what they're up to in this area is um, creating a model for community development, conservation, and responsible tourism. Is any of that accurate? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly what they say. I think one piece that we mention in the report that is important to point out um, revolves around a community proposal that was brought forth to Thompson Safaris in 2011. Um, this was uh, in, in light of the community being forced off their land and, and all of the allegations that I've mentioned. They basically, about 550 Maasai came together and, and came up with a proposal for Tanzania Conservation Limited about how they could work together around this this land conflict. It included things like not having restrictions to access watering points, identifying grazing lands, allowing footways to get between villages, clear rules and responsibilities about the management of the contracts, but also conflict resolution. Annual bed fees and renting would be discussed as part of it. Um, They said that they thought that TCL could have 
exclusive access to 2,000 acres of that land, and the rest of it they would negotiate sort of communally. And, and, and what we heard was that the, the company said no. Um, and so to me, if, if you're really committed to sustainable and community-led conservation and, and development in a region, saying no to a community proposal like this is pretty shocking. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we move any further with this, I think probably a lot of our listeners really are not familiar with the Maasai uh, way of life and uh, historically how they have derived a sustainable living um, from this area of the Rift Valley where they live. So maybe let's just take a, take a moment and maybe you could describe what it is, like what actually is being disruptive, uh, disrupted and harmful to, uh, to them and their ability to pursue their lives, feed their families and uh, uh, continue in a healthy in a healthy way so what so what's what really is the problem here what is their grievance sure so i think as you mentioned in the introduction the the maasai are a semi-nomadic group of pastoralists and what this means is that cattle and livestock are 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 integral to their way of life Um, and that's not just in terms of survival but also in terms of culture in terms of community in terms of uh, uh, so many different aspects cattle are 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 integral to their way of life Um, and the Maasai have been in this area of Tanzania since the late 15th century so they have lived in Mm -hmm. harmony with the natural ecosystems there you know as the traditional stewards of the land in, in a sort of a symbiotic relationship with the land for centuries, but that's based on being able to move cattle to different grazing areas and to different watering holes based on a variety of different factors, based on wildlife migration, based on the seasons, based on drought, based on, you know, any number of different factors. Um, By being semi-nomadic, it means that they're not just stationary in one area, Um, and so they established these bomas, small homestead compounds with mud huts surrounded by thorny bushes, and, and, and move their cattle around with the seasons and it's this pattern um, and this really really livelihood strategy that's being challenged Mm -hmm. okay there's another big force in this story and uh, that's that's a company that comes out of the United Arab Emirates um, called the Ortello Business Corporation can you tell us a little bit about them yeah, sure. So the Ortello Business Corporation um, is a company that organizes hunting excursions for the royal family of the UAE and their guests. They've had an exclusive hunting license um, in the Liliondo region since 1992. Um, they have, you know, it's, it's actually quite astonishing. They've built an, an airstrip there for their personal private use to be able to go on these hunting excursions. When you are in the area and if you have a cell phone, if you go to this right area, it lights up saying, welcome to the United Arab Emirates. They've got their own cell phone networks there. Um, and essentially, they likewise have restricted access in a very severe way to lands and water that are used by the Maasai um, and have also been very intimately linked to a lot of the violent evictions that are a part of this story. So starting in 2009, um, there was a, a really significant eviction of Maasai uh, villages in the Loliondo area um, that took place not only by OBC security guards, but in collusion and in collaboration with a mil- paramilitary um, unit of the Tanzanian government. Mm-hmm. Um, and this led to the burning of bomas, this led to cattle being confiscated, um, 
tens of thousands of people being impacted by this. And um, as far as we know, there have been at least three evictions, uh, violent evictions, including the burning of bomas like this um, since 2009. And I gather there's also been sexual violence in this whole scenario. Yeah, those are certainly the allegations, and that's what we're hearing from groups on the ground. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about conservation for a minute, because it's, you know, for a lot of people, this is all very confusing. Conservation, in a lot of people's minds, has very good connotations. It means that it's providing a framework for protecting land, the environment, animals, and many conservationists would argue also indigenous populations and their traditional ways of life. And yet, when we look at this situation, we're seeing it as a driving force for dispossession of the Maasai. Um, Can you talk a little bit about conservation and how it's become a tool for dispossession? Sure. I mean, I think one great example that pertains to this case is the creation of Serengeti National Park. Um, So this happened in Tanzania in the 1950s when Tanzania was under um, British rule. And basically, the Brits thought that conservation um, couldn't happen with human habitation alongside it. Mm. The conservation meant the pristine conservation of a land with the removal of all human habitat. Um, And so as a result, um, what we what was known then as the Serengeti region was split into two different areas, and in one area, um, the Maasai were told that they could no longer inhabit that area. They were given uh, another area, which is now the area that's under dispute to to live in. Um, and it's and it's this sort of belief that there cannot be cohabitation, multiple use, the symbiotic relationship between humans and the natural environment that has led to so much of this dispossession in the case of Tanzania, though we do see it in other circumstances, um, uh, in other places as well. Um, In the 1960s, for instance, um, groups, uh, international conservation groups said that you couldn't, it it was important for conservation to restrict cultivation, to restrict the grazing of cattle, and any sort of human movement in in conservation areas in Tanzania. Um, And so it's these sorts of beliefs that are driving that. And what I think we want to get across in, in this report is that conservation can't come at the cost of indigenous lives and livelihoods. That we're seeing people that have lived in these symbiotic stewardship relationships with the land for so long being forced out under this guise of so-called conservation. We really want to challenge that notion that conservation has to happen on the backs of the indigenous. Mm -hmm. We see that more as a colonization of indigenous land in the name of so-called conservation. Well, yes, and I mean, it almost seems Orwellian in a sense that um, indigenous peoples are being accused of destroying their ecosystems and uh, and that the the force for conservation is tourism. Certainly. And, and I mean, I think the example of the Ortello Business Corporation, for instance, building their own airstrip mm-hmm. and then having the government evict groups um, in the name of so-called conservation and tourism is, is a glaring example of that, which fits more into a lens of conservation. Maasai pastoralists living in harmony with communities and wildlife around them or a, a ginormous private airstrip. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to the court case briefly. So what what was the ruling back in September? 
Sure. So um, the ruling that happened in September um, basically granted a temporary injunction um, that prohibits the Tanzanian government from doing a whole bunch of nasty things to the Maasai. And, and what's important to know here is the history of what's happened between the introduction of the court case in August or in September of 2017, shortly after the evictions and this ruling. Um, the actions of the Tanzanian government throughout this case have really been egregious. Um, first off, the Attorney General challenged the villagers' right to sue the court, um, or to sue the government at the East African Court of Justice, and that was quickly dismissed. Then they went on and questioned the accuracy of documents that villagers submitted demonstrating um, what had happened um, and the credibility of the translators. This you know, sort of derailed the case for a while while all of that was sorted out. Then in May, what um, leading up to a hearing that was scheduled for early June, 24 Maasai community members, including three village chairmen, were actually detained by local police in Liliondo. And the charges there were just astounding. They were things like instituting a case against the central government mm. without the government's permission. Mm. They were things like holding a community meeting without permission. They were things like contributing financial resources to pay lawyers without the government's approval. Um, and uh, while most of those community members were released on bail shortly afterwards, um, the, the local police um, department said that they had to come back every single Friday from then on and check in. Mm. And, and that may seem innocuous, but what happened was that basically prohibited all of those folks from being able to travel to Arusha to attend the next hearing of this court case. We then fast forward two months uh, ahead to the end of July of this year, and 12 Maasai, ranging in ages from just five years old to about 33 years old from one of the villages, were actually attacked by soldiers from the Tanzanian People's Defense Force, who were accompanied by an employee from the Ortello Business Corporation, physically attacked. And so through these different kinds of acts of intimidation, the lawyers of um, the Maasai villagers um, basically filed um, a request for interim measures to, to ensure the safety of mm -hmm. their plaintiffs, of their clients. And that's what was ruled upon in September. This temporary injunction does a, a number of things. It prohibits the government from evicting Maasai communities um, from the area of land in question. It's a, a 150,000 hectare uh, parcel of land. It prohibits them from destroying their homes, from confiscating their livestock, and importantly, it bans the inspector general of the police from harassing and intimidating the Maasai plaintiffs. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to know, though, that this is all this is in place until the full determination of the case has happened. So while this is an incredibly important victory, and what we've heard from the communities on the ground is that things have improved since the injunction came forward, we really need to continue to um, build international solidarity to support the Maasai as they continue forward with this case um, uh, to to get the unequivocal recognition of their land rights. Mm -hmm. It seemed like there was a little bit of an uptick. I think it was in 2017 when the new Minister of Resources and Tourism, well, I mean, ultimately, long story short, ended up taking away the license from the Ortello Business Corporation from the United Arab Emirates. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because, I mean, there ha that struck me that that was a fairly significant victory for the Maasai. 
Yeah, that's been a super interesting um, piece to follow. So you're absolutely right. In November 2017, the Minister of Natural Resources and Tourism canceled the OBC's license. Um, And as part of canceling that license, he called for the arrest of the OBC's executive director Mm -hmm. for trying to bribe the ministry over the years. And he called for an investigation through the Corruption Bureau into what had happened around the 25 years that the OBC had had this hunting license. Um, But then, surprisingly, uh, about four months later, in March 2018, um, he welcomed them back uh, via a tweet on Twitter, um, you know, welcoming them back and encouraging them to continue to use the area. And and what we've heard from folks on the ground is that the OBC still very much so remains in Loliondo, um, that the situation has not changed. And in fact, when our report came out, it was that same minister who was the most scathing and and, uh, irate about the findings of our report and the publicization of what was going on in the Loliondo region. Okay, let's uh, shift gears here a little bit. I gather that you were in Tanzania for in researching the report losing the Serengeti, the Maasai land that was to run forever. Is that correct, that you were there doing research in the field? It actually was my uh, one of my colleagues who was there. Okay. I wasn't uh, part of that okay. field research team. All yeah. right. Well, anyway, but one of the main things that really comes out of that report is that is is a demonstration of how the Maasai have been remarkably steadfast in their resistance and very resilient over the last several decades in the face of this ongoing encroachment on their territory and. Uh, the report, you know, clearly makes it clear that a lot of people were spoken to, that a lot of time was spent with them. Was there anything for you, even though you weren't there, there were a lot of testimonials. Was there anything in particular in that report that stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, the quote that really just um, has stayed in my heart and in my mind um, since I, I first started working on this was from one of the elders that my colleague spoke to who said, if we can break the ground to lower a body, why can't we break it for cultivation? Mm. And this speaks to one of the aspects uh, around the land laws that the Tanzanian government has put in place, which is basically to ban cultivation in the area. The Maasai have for generations um, not just been pastoralists, but have also cultivated small garden plots to, to augment their um, livelihoods as pastoralists. We're not talking about commercial farms. We're not talking about large monocrops. We're talking about small family subsistence garden plots. And and the government has, has at several different occasions, banned cultivation in the areas that they have restricted the Maasai to living in. And this was, this was the piece that just... I mean, that just continues to haunt me, haunt me, this idea that if we can break the ground to lower a body, why can't we break it to cultivate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very evocative. Okay, last point. I mean, the Maasai have also been fairly creative in terms of trying to come up with solutions to this situation, although they shouldn't necessarily have to bear the brunt of that. So, of course, you know, the courts increasingly occupy... Um, people's strategies. It's a very expensive strategy. It's not always successful, but they've also looked elsewhere. And uh, so could you tell us a little bit about the certificates of customary right of occupancy? Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is just a beautiful example, as you said, of um, of local ingenuity and innovation. 
So this is um, basically a, a way of creating land rights that was piloted and continues to be pushed forward by a local organization there called the Ujima Community Resource Team. And basically, these certificates allow entire communities to secure indivisible rights over their customary lands. They can then, you know, manage those areas through bylaws, through management plans, things like that. Um, but importantly, because they're not assigned to an individual, they're assigned to an entire community, they can't be sold, traded, subdivided, etc., without the consensus of the entire community. So it creates this, this communal ability to continue to have both rights to and stewardship over land. Um, that's been a really beautiful example of um, one of the many forms of, of resistance in the face of the, the situation that's taking place in Tanzania. Yes, and it's so savvy in a sense that whether, you know, we, there are other communities in Tanzania that are grappling with losing access to their land and their livelihoods because of gold mining. I mean, it's it's uh, there's so many versions of this story, and so much of it has to do with dividing communities and co-opting leadership and all of this. It seems like it's a very eloquent response to those kinds of tactics. I agree. I agree. You end your report with a, just an amazing quote. It's by Marcus Colchester, who's a British, British zoologist, and he says, it is exactly because the areas that Indigenous people inhabit have not been degraded by the traditional resource practices that they are now coveted by conservationists who seek to limit their activities or expel them altogether from their customary land. It seems like it kind of wraps it up in a nutshell. It does, and I think what's, to me, what's so important about that quote, um, and is important, you know, for us to all consider in the case of, of this particular report, is that while our report focuses on a single area and a couple of companies, this is truly a reality that's far too real for many Indigenous mm-hmm. groups around the world. Governments, corporations, even large conservation groups colluding in the name of conservation to force Indigenous groups off their land. Um, and so I think we need to always hold that in our minds, that this isn't just a, a, the situation of the Maasai in Tanzania, but this is happening all over the world, and we need to always remember that, and we need to be you know, acting in solidarity and supporting these groups as much as possible. Okay, so for those who would like to express their solidarity and get involved, uh, what to, what's, what's the best next step for them? Sure, if anyone wants to reach out to us, um, you can find our information on our website, www.oaklandinstitute.org. We're continuing to support the Maasai in this court case as it moves forward and in other ways based on their wishes and the ways that they see that they, we can support them. We're building international solidarity to, again, support them through this court case and beyond. Um, so for anyone that's interested in finding out more, they're welcome to get in touch. Okay, Elizabeth Fraser, thank you so much for joining us here tonight on Amandla. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye.